Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 26, verse 17. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. One of the delights in reading through the Proverbs is the vivid and often comical images that are depicted of the foolish man. Just last week we saw him too lazy to even lift his hand from the fruit bowl. This morning we see him stupidly grabbing the ears of a dog. It takes little effort of our imagination to visualize the results of such an action. The impact of this analogy is greater when we recall that the dogs in King Solomon's time were not domesticated. They were wild animals. To take one by the ears was surely to be surely attacked and bitten. Here we are told that this ridiculous and dangerous action is the same as meddling in other people's quarrels. When we meddle, we involve ourselves in a matter without the right or invitation to do so. We interfere. In a fight or quarrel where people are angry and the situation is often heated, this interference only serves to add fuel to an already raging fire. The result is harm. Harm to him who meddles and harm to the parties involved in the quarrel. This is true because the purposes of meddling are evil. When we examine this issue, we find three main motivators for meddling. One is delight in stirring up trouble. This is meddling for the sake of the entertainment of a fight. The joy of watching others get riled up. An obvious example of this today are the daytime talk shows like Jerry Springer. Another motivation is a love of gossip. This is meddling for the purpose of knowing everyone's business, of being the one with all the juicy news. The third motivation for meddling is one I think we as Christians are most prone to. It is meddling motivated by pride an inflated belief that our wisdom and our knowledge is sufficient to solve everyone's problems. We have such a high view of our own abilities that we force ourselves on the situation. We grab the proverbial dog by the ears because, of course, we can subdue it. According to this morning's text, however, the end result of meddling, whether as a troublemaker, as a gossiper, or out of pride, is injury. There is no good in meddling because there is no love in meddling. So we must not meddle. How then do we avoid such sin when there is fighting and quarreling all around us? In our families, at our workplaces, even in our church. We steer clear of meddling by praying and waiting. If we become aware of a quarrel, we should consider what is being said and then pray for the people involved. Pray and then wait to see how God answers our prayers for them, how he will bring resolution and peace to the situation. Even if we are confident we can help fix the problem, we should still pray and wait. Pray for heavenly wisdom and then wait to be asked to help. We should also wait in order to check our own motives. Are we motivated to be involved out of sincere love for the quarrelers? Or are we hungry for some good gossip? Do we generally desire peace or just an opportunity to put our own intellect on display? This proverb reminds us of our sin. We are guilty of meddling. We are guilty of the pride and selfishness that leads to meddling. And because of our sin, Almighty God had a quarrel with us. 
But we must remember that our Lord Jesus Christ got involved, not as a meddler, but as a peacemaker. He has made atonement for our sins so that we can be forgiven. Let us therefore go to him now and confess our sins. Please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God. stumbling in the dark. We wouldn't know your will. We wouldn't know the way of salvation through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We wouldn't know what repentance is or what righteousness is. And so we thank you, Father, for your word that makes us wise into salvation. Lord, these folks here are your beloved sheep for whom your son shed his precious blood. Thank you for the privilege of feeding them, Lord, that you've entrusted to me as sinner. Lord, I pray that my weakness will not get in the way this morning, that my frailties, Lord, will only serve to exalt you in the preaching of your word. Please move through me by your spirit to feed all of us and to build us up in the most holy faith so that we'll leave here stronger in the faith and equipped to honor and glorify you in our lives in the world. Father, we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, as you see uh, in the bulletin, I'm in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be considering verses 29 through 35, which is about halfway through the, the middle section of our Lord's Olivet Discourse, uh, where he was teaching about the fall of the temple and a coming judgment, a great coming judgment. Now, as soon as you turn to this passage and you read it, if you're anything like me, I grew up, grown up in the church, I'm accustomed to, to interpreting these verses in one particular way, right? And these are some of the most controversial passages or verses in all of Scripture. Uh, and so this morning, I want to help uh, interpret these things for you by taking our time to walk through them. And the angle I'm going to be taking in interpreting these verses, specifically in verses 29 through 35, is going to be something that some of you here may not be accustomed to. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't, I, I'm not sure. But I know when I studied this, it was amazing to me and incredibly encouraging. So I want to share it with you uh, today. So the point, the angle that I'll be arguing for is that the events recorded that were foretold by our Lord, not recorded, but foretold by Him here in Matthew 24, that they are past, not future. That's the perspective I'm going to, I'm adopting in the sermon today. These events that He is, was foretelling at this point are in our past, not in our future. That's not a common interpretation of these verses in our day and age. And so if that raises red flags in your mind, or maybe just yellow flags, that's okay. We'll walk through it. And if you have questions after the sermon, that's all right as well. I'll let Pastor DeWinko come back up and sort through all of that. It's one of the good things about being a visiting pastor. You can come make a mess and then let the other guy sort through it. I'm not going to make a mess. Lord willing, I'm not going to make a mess. But it makes a great deal of difference in regard to how this passage applies to our lives, depending upon whether or not these verses are pointing to something that is in our past or in our future. You follow, right? If the events of verses 1 through 31 in Matthew 24 are future, then they, these are signs for which you and I must be watching. 
right? And we hear lots of, I believe, well-intentioned brothers and sisters in Christ who tell us that that's the case. These are things that are going to happen maybe tomorrow, right? Read the latest book, maybe not for another few centuries, but these are things that have yet to happen. But if they are past, if these events, if these judgments have already taken place, then that is where we are to look for their fulfillment, not in the headlines of tomorrow, but in our history books. In our history books. And the wonderful thing about seeing their fulfillment in the history books is that it provides us with an incredible confirmation of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So my aim this morning primarily is to bolster your confidence in Christ by looking back in the past and seeing the fulfillment of His Word so that you may face our future with hope, knowing that He will certainly accomplish everything He has promised. And we know He will because He's always done that. He's always done exactly what He says He will do. And seeing those His work fulfilled in the past gives us confidence that He's going to do the same in the future. Amen? So let's pay attention now. Please listen carefully as I read our Lord's words to you from Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of, the he of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away, until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The great challenge of these verses, specifically verses 29 through 31, is to establish whether or not we should read them literally or figuratively. There's where the debate takes place among modern evangelical scholars. Are these, is our Lord speaking figurative here, uh, figuratively, or is he speaking literally? Is he describing literal physical events that are going to take place, or is he using figurative language to convey the cosmic importance of the destruction of Jerusalem? A point that we must note here is that if we interpret these events as being literal, physical occurrences, then that limits how we interpret verse 34. We cannot interpret verse 34 literally if we're going to interpret everything else as being literal. Why? Well, because that generation that the Lord Jesus was referring to, a generation in Israel's thinking was about 40 years, give or take, that generation to whom he was speaking did indeed pass away before these events took place, if we are to interpret them as literal physical events. 
So we would have to interpret generation to mean something besides a literal generation of, peer, of people, a period of 40 years or so. So since Christ had prefaced the entire discussion, he, he launches the Olivet Discourse by pointing to an event. What event is that? What's he referring to? Was he talking about something that was way off in the future? No, he was talking about something that was going to happen within a generation. He begins the Olivet Discourse by talking about the fall of Jerusalem. He says, not one stone will be left on another. What was he talking about? Well, he was talking about when the Roman general Titus would come marching in, a Passover of 70 AD, and would eventually raise the temple to the ground and burn it. That's what he was referring to. So that prophecy, that prediction, is what prefaces everything that follows here in Matthew 24. And we have to remember that. Because we know what that the fall of the temple, the destruction of the temple, did happen during the lifespan of that generation. It happened within 40 years. If we think the Lord Jesus, our Lord gave this, uh, the Olivet Discourse around 33 A.D. or so, and the fall of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem was in 70 A.D., that's within a generation. So on that basis, I'm suggesting to you, based on what we know, based on our Lord's prefacing of this entire discussion with the fall of the temple, which we know would happen within a generation's time, we have to interpret verse 34 as being literal. The Lord Jesus is referring to a literal generation there. He's not speaking figuratively. Sometimes you'll hear some scholars who say, well, generation refers to the Jewish race or something along those lines. But when you look at the context, I, I don't think we can get away with that. We have to interpret generation as being literal. Now, if we read generation as literal, then it is undeniable that everything Jesus said prior to verse 32 must have taken place during that generation's lifespan. Understand that. If we interpret generation as literally referring to 40 years, give or take, then everything else happened within that generation's lifespan. Consider verse 34. What did our Lord say? He said that that generation would not pass away until what? Until some of these things happen? Until most of them happen? No. He said all of these things had take, will take place. And that, mean, and that would include the events of verses 29 through 31 that we've just heard about. Now, as I said at the introduction, this may be disconcerting for some of us, because we've always been taught, most of us anyway, if you've grown up in evangelical churches anyhow, that these verses refer to our Lord's second coming at the culmination of history, which is the great hope of the church, where he shall appear in the air, and those who are, are passed away shall be caught up in the air with those who are alive and remain, shall be with the Lord forevermore. And that's obviously what we all look forward to as believers. But when we read this passage in light of the Old Testament, we see that it makes far more sense to interpret these verses as applying to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD rather than foretelling some sort of a judgment that is yet to come in our, in our history. And I think the Old Testament is a huge help in understanding why the Lord Jesus used 
the language he did and use the imagery he did when he was foretelling Jerusalem's fall. So let's consider now briefly the darkening of the heavenly lights that he refers to here. Let's consider verse 29 first. Now here the Lord Jesus is using dramatic imagery, very dramatic, that would certainly be terrifying to behold. Could you imagine what it would be like to see the stars literally fall from heaven? I've thought about that at times. And I, you know, we live out in the country in Indiana, so uh, we have no light noise or whatever you call it, no interference. So you can see the stars. You can see the Milky Way from our house at times. And I remember I stand out there some evenings. And I, I think to myself, what would it be like to see all the stars begin to fall from the skies? You'd be terrifying. It'd be mind-boggling. You'd go insane if that began to happen. So he's using dramatic imagery. It's intended to, to convey a sense of fear and a sense of change, of upheaval, because that's what that would represent. If the stars fall from the heavens, that would mean the natural order of things is being changed. Right? The cosmos itself is being transformed. And that's really the point of the imagery that he's using here is to convey the terror and severity of God's judgment and the destruction of entire nations. That's why he's using that language. To get, get it to our thick heads that the wrath of God is serious. The wrath of God is something to be feared. The wrath of God is something that can tear nations apart. That's why he uses that such imagery. And we see the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, using such language throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Listen to these passages from the Old Testament and consider for a moment whether or not God intended for them to be interpreted literally or figuratively. And again, these are all passages that are referring to the wrath of God and God's judgment against nations. The first one is from the book of Isaiah. You don't, you don't need to turn there. You can write them down if you'd like. But Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 10. Here Isaiah is referring to the judgment of Babylon, foretelling that judgment. And this is what Isaiah writes. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Sound familiar? Does that sound anything like the language that our Lord uses in Matthew 24? It sure does, but there's more. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 through 26. And this is Jeremiah's lament over the coming desolation of Judah, resulting from God's outpouring of judgment for her sin. This is what Jeremiah writes. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was out with, without form and void. And I looked to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. What's the emphasis on there? Fierce anger, the fierce anger of God. 
What kind of language is being used by Jeremiah to convey the fierceness of God's anger? Cosmic language, figurative language. Ezekiel chapter 32, verses 7 through 8. This is against Egypt. This is God warning Egypt. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And all the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you, and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Joel chapter 2, verse 10, again predicting judgment upon Judah. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. Then sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. And finally, there are more passages than this, but I'll limit myself to a reference to Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, where in Joseph's dream, his brothers, who represent the tribes of Israel, are symbolized, get this, they are symbolized by the sun, moon, and 11 stars. So the tribes of Israel in Genesis 37, 9 are, are, are uh, figured as heavenly lights. And here in Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus is talking about the light, the stars falling from heaven. Right? So if you make that connection, well, the tribes of Israel are represented as heavenly lights. And Jesus says the stars are going to fall from the heavens. What, is that, what might that refer to? Could it, fall, could it refer to the fall, the collapse of the tribes of Israel in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was burnt? I think that makes sense. So from these passages that I've just read to you, it's clear to me that the darkening of the heavenly lights is symbolic of the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel, not literal physical events. Because throughout scripture, when God uses that kind of imagery, it's never referring to literal physical events, or very rarely, it's referring to the fierceness of his wrath and the outpouring of his wrath. That's the usage we see in Scripture, and we have to believe that's why the Lord Jesus used that language intentionally. When, because who was he speaking to in the Olivet Discourse? Was he speaking to a bunch of middle-class Americans from the 21st century, Michigan, Indiana? No. He was speaking to first-century Jews who knew the Old Testament. And so he used the figurative language of the Old Testament to convey to them the seriousness of what was going to come upon Israel because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Doesn't that make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense to me to think through it in that way. He's using language that would have been familiar to his Jewish audience. Now, in light of that, when we understand that the Lord Jesus is not intending to tell us about literal physical events that are going to happen at some point in the future, but that his intention is simply to convey the severity of God's wrath against Jerusalem and Israel, that should really give us pause for a moment, personally. It's really easy to look at the fall of Jerusalem and God's judgment of Jerusalem and, and, to, and to make it safe and removed from us. Well, that's not me, right? I'm not first century Jerusalem. Yes, but you are a sinner. You're right. You are a sinner. I'm as much a sinner as those Pharisees and scribes who rejected him. I don't deserve any better than what Jerusalem got, do you? No. So why should that give us pause? 
Well, it should give us pause as we consider what such imagery teaches us about the nature of God's wrath. Boy, that's an unpopular topic nowadays, isn't it? I don't mean here at this particular church, but I mean in the broader church. The wrath of God is not discussed. Why? Well, because. How do you make a VBS out of the wrath of God? Seriously. How do you how do you feel fulfilled to and how are you spurred on to achieve your, your best life now and your maximum potential when you're being confronted with the wrath of God? How do you fix your marriage and your finances when you're so concerned about the wrath of God? And I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but honestly, what's our biggest problem as sinners? Is it our marriages? Is it our finances? No, it's the fact that God is angry at us, and justly so. The wrath of God is our biggest concern, and it's so easy to distract ourselves with all these other things that do need attention. I mean, that's what that's a pastor's bread and butter, marriages, finances. I mean, come on, right? That's what keeps us in, in work in a lot of ways, is helping the saints. But the thing that we have to keep foremost in our minds as we preach the gospel to the nations and to one another is that our biggest problem as fallen human beings is the wrath of God. And what we need to recognize about the wrath of God and the figurative language that the Lord Jesus uses in describing it is that human language is inadequate to the task of fully capturing the horror of what it is like to fall under the wrath of God. So it must be described in cosmic terms because there is simply no way to describe to you what it is like to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why the book of Hebrews chapter 10 doesn't go into great detail because the author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, knew there's no point in going into great detail. He just tells us, he warns us, it is an awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, what's that mean? Read the Old Testament. Read the Olivet Discourse. Behold what happened to Jerusalem because of her rejection of Christ the Messiah. That's what it's like to fall into the hands of the living God. Now let me ask you as you consider that, as you see what God did to Jerusalem justly for their rejection of His Son, as you consider the judgment He poured out upon Israel and Egypt and all the nations who rebelled against Him under the Old Covenant, does it make you tremble? When you consider the wrath of God, do you tremble at all? We really should, brothers and sisters. We should all tremble when we think of the wrath of God. And my concern for me is, when, I'm not, when I don't tremble, when I consider the wrath of God, it makes me concerned that my heart has been numbed with presumption to the Lord Jesus Christ, that I have lost sight of the seriousness of my sin and what it deserves. Now, I'm not saying to you that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have received Him in faith, been born of the Spirit, I'm not suggesting to you that we should all walk around trembling with fear, because God calls us to peace and joy. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, in order for us to truly have peace with God, we have to understand that from which Christ has saved us. And I think that's why it's so important for us to keep such a clear focus upon the wrath of God so that the cross of Christ will remain precious to us and what He accomplished for us. 
you realize, in light of God's wrath against sin, the most precious thing in the world to you ought to be the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be nothing and no one more precious to you than Him. And Him crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. Do you know why? Well, because it's only His blood that stands between you and the wrath of God. It is only His blood that stands between me and the wrath of God. Nothing else. Not my works. Nothing. So Christ should be precious to us. Is He precious to you? Is He? Let's consider now, briefly, the Son of Man and the tribes of the Lamb. I promise I will not go too long today. If I do, just tap your watches or something. Uh, the Son of the Man and the tribes of the Lamb. We also, in light of everything I've just said about figurative language and, the old, and the, our Lord's very intentional use of Old Testament prophetic language, we must also view the images of verse 30 through the lens of the Old Testament. Now, as I said to you earlier, the Lord Jesus was using this language intentionally. He knew his audience. He was using this imagery to hit his points home with the Jews to whom he was preaching. So what I'm suggesting to you about verse 30, which is often interpreted to refer to our Lord's second coming, what I'm, what I'm suggesting to you, that what is being pictured here is not the return of the Lord Jesus in power and glory, invisibly, at the culmination of history, but is referring instead to his exaltation as king and coming in judgment against Jerusalem. You know, when we read this verse, we need to keep in mind what our Lord said to Caiaphas at his trial. Do you remember what he said to Caiaphas, that scoundrel, that wicked, wicked man, who accused our Lord of blasphemy? Can you imagine that? He, he sat there and accused the Lord Jesus Christ of blasphemy. But anyway, here's Caiaphas, and this is what he says to the Lord Jesus at his trial. Our Lord sitting there bloodied being tried for uh, sins he obviously was guilt innocent of. And Caiaphas demands the Son of God to answer him. He says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas didn't know who he was talking to. But this is what Caiaphas said to him. And this is what our Lord said back. You know, our Lord had been quiet up to this point, right? He did not revile in return. But here he answers. Here he answers Caiaphas, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming at, on the clouds of heaven. The Lord Jesus was making a pronouncement about himself there, and he wasn't talking about his second coming. He couldn't have been, because he was talking to Caiaphas and all the Jews who were gathered there at the time, and he said that they would see it happen. So he could have been talking about something that was going to come thousands of years in the future. And how did Caiaphas respond when our Lord said that to him? How did he respond? Was he puzzled? No, he tore his robes. And then he accused our Lord of blasphemy. Blasphemer! He tore his robes. Why? Why did Caiaphas tear his robes when our Lord said that? 
Well, because he knew the Old Testament. He knew the book of Daniel. And he knew that the Lord Jesus was quoting from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And in that passage, the Messiah is described as ascending to God with the clouds of heaven, who then gives him dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's the reference the Lord Jesus is making. And when he said to Caiaphas, when he called himself the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, Caiaphas knew that Jesus was proclaiming himself to be Messiah. And that is why he tore his robes. Because the Lord Jesus was saying, you are going to serve me, Caiaphas. You're going to see me exalted. To the right hand of the Father. You will know I have been exalted. It will be proven to you and to all Israel that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what our Lord was saying to Caiaphas, and this is why Caiaphas responded by tearing his robes. So we must read verse 30 in light of our Lord's words to Caiaphas, and also in light of Daniel chapter 7. Jesus was asserting with Caiaphas that he would be vindicated before all Israel and that all Israel would see or understand that God had made Christ king. And that is precisely what our Lord is describing in verse 30. Not his second coming, but his vindication before Israel in the judgment of Jerusalem. Do you follow? If you do, nod. So I know that I'm making sense to you. He was talking about his vindication in the judgment of Jerusalem. So let's consider how this understanding makes sense of the imagery in verse 30. First, our Lord refers to the sign of the Son of Man. This is often thought of as referring to some sort of miraculous sign appearing in the skies prior to Christ's return. And I'm suggesting to you that the sign actually was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the sign. Not a miraculous sign in the heavens, but the destruction of Jerusalem itself was the sign that proved that the Son of Man had been enthroned in heaven. And that actually agrees with a word-for-word translation of the Greek, which is, reads as follows... Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So the point here is that the sign did not appear in heaven. The sign was earthly, but the sign approved, proved something that had happened in heaven, namely the exaltation of Christ. So you think of it this way. The fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple proved that Christ had been exalted as king. What about the tribes of the land, or tribes of the earth, as the ESV has it, many other versions have it translated as such as well. That's, I would prefer the translation myself, tribes of the land, which is a possible interpretation, and I think, in light of the context, is a more appropriate translation, that the tribes refer not to all the tribes of the earth, but refer to the tribes of Israel, not the entire planet. And that makes sense to me, because our Lord had already said that the tribulation of those days would be localized in Judea. We see that in verse 16 of Matthew 24. We also, he also tells us that the people of Israel would mourn over the sign of the Son of Man's authority. And what did Israel mourn in 70 AD? The destruction of the temple, of course. 
They mourned over that. When they saw the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, the destruction of the temple, which proved that Christ is the Son of Man, he proved it in judging Israel in Jerusalem, Israel mourned over that. They were convicted of their sin and recognized the judgment that had come upon them. As one commentator writes, Jesus' time connection is highly revealing. When the sign of the Son of Man in heaven appears, then will Israel mourn, as if the cause of their desperation and sorrow were the appearing of the sign. The connection is clear. Those who assassinated God's Son would live to see the day when He would be gloriously vindicated and the resultant heinousness of their crime against Him appropriately exposed and punished. This helps us to understand the final statement our Lord makes in this verse. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Remember, our Lord had said something very similar to Caiaphas, and he was not referring to his return at the end of history. The key we should focus on is the use of our, Lord, of our Lord's imagery of coming on the clouds of heaven. Because as we look back again on the Old Testament, we see God using the same language to refer to his coming in judgment against nations under the Old Covenant. We see this in Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. Obviously, God did not intend for the Egyptians to interpret that literally as if God was going to come riding upon a cloud as if it were his horse in judgment against Egypt. The point was to convey the fact that God was coming in judgment. And that's exactly why our Lord uses such language here. Not to say that he would be physically visible in the heavens when he came in judgment, but simply to communicate the fact that he was going to come in judgment against Jerusalem. So in light of Isaiah 19.1 and other various passages from the Old Testament, I don't believe that we should interpret Matthew 24.30 any more literally than we would interpret Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1, for example. Finally, we come to verse 31 and the gathering of, of the elect. Uh, this is frequently, in, well, if I took a poll of the congregation, I won't, but if I did and I asked you how is this passage often interpreted, most of us, well, many of us here would say, well, that refers to the rapture, right? When the Lord Jesus returns and our, you know, our dispensational pre-tribulational brethren would interpret it as the rapture, we would interpret it as our Lord gathering up his saints uh, at the culmination of history. But I don't think that that interpretation really fits with the context of what our Lord is saying here. Remember, verse 34 and, that, and his use of the word generation and saying that all these things would take place within the span of that generation, that limits the time frame for when these things could take place. And so if I'm going to interpret generation literally, I'm not going to interpret the gathering of the elect in verse 31 as referring to the culmination of history when the Lord Jesus returns for his people. So how should we interpret verse 31? What is he talking about then, Nate? If he's not talking about like what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4. Well, I would suggest to you 
that the trumpet call, because our Lord uses that, he refers to the trumpet call going out, and again, he's doing that intentionally, he's not picking out of the air, he's using these references intentionally to point us back to the Old Testament, to see how the Old Testament uses such language. I believe the trumpet call he describes here refers to the book of Numbers, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And what we find in Numbers 10, 1 through 10, is that God commanded silver trumpets to be made, and the silver trumpets were blown in order to summon God's people to gather together for worship at the tabernacle. So when those trumpets were blown, that was the signal for all God's people to gather together at the tabernacle. So I would suggest to you that the loud trumpet call that our Lord is describing here refers not to his second coming, but refers to the preaching of the gospel among the nations, calling the elect to be gathered into the church to worship God. And the angels he describes here, we need not interpret them to be the spiritual servants of God, uh, who are pure spiritual beings, but they may also be interpreted as messengers whom Christ sent into the world to disciple the nations. And that's really the idea being conveyed because our Lord refers to the four winds, which refers to the four corners of the earth. So the point here, I believe, that our Lord is, is bringing up is that the trumpet call is the call of the gospel that will be sent through his church, through his disciples, to the whole world so that all the elect may be gathered together into the church. And that fits beautifully with our passage of commission for this morning, which is taken out of Matthew uh, chapter 28 and refers to our Lord's great commission. Go therefore into the world and disciple the nations, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is what I believe our Lord is saying to us. And this makes sense in light of what Jesus said in the parable of the tenants back in Matthew 21, 43. Here's what he said there to Israel. He said, therefore I tell you, speaking to the Jews, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So what happened in 70 AD? The trumpet call was blown and Christ finally and forcibly took the kingdom away from Israel, the wicked tenants who rejected the king's son. And from that time on, the kingdom has not been centralized in Jerusalem, but it's been working its way throughout the world like yeast through the dough. And we know it's been doing that because here we are in Howell, Michigan, confessing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When, and remember, the church started small. In 70 AD, the church was extremely small and insignificant in the eyes of the world, right? And now here we are today. Because a trumpet call has gone forth, we have heard it, and here we are, gathering together at the tabernacle, so to speak, the church, to worship the Lord God in spirit and in truth. So let me wrap all of this up for you. In your outline, this would be under the portion, His words shall never pass away. That's the point here. When we understand that these signs were fulfilled in 70 AD, if you buy the argument that I presented to you briefly here, you may not, you may need time to think upon it, but if, you, if you're convinced of it, we realize that the fall of Jerusalem provides us with an incredible confirmation of our faith in the Lord Jesus. Consider for a moment 
what the fall of Jerusalem confirms for us. First, it confirms for us that the Lord Jesus has indeed made full atonement for our sins. He has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. How do we know that? Because God exalted him, because he was obedient even to the point of dying on a cross. So when you look at the fall of Jerusalem, you can be assured that in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. The blood of Christ is powerful to save you from the wrath of God. God has accepted our Lord's offering on our behalf. Here's the second thing we're assured of in the fall of Jerusalem. We know that Christ has truly risen and descended to the right hand of the Father, and that he now reigns over heaven and earth. This was proven beyond all doubt in the fall of Jerusalem. And we know with certainty that he is always interceding on our behalf while he is at the Father's right hand, as we are promised in Hebrews 7. Third, we know that regardless of the hardships we face in this life, and we're facing some now, aren't we? Right? This culture we live in is so easy to want to give up, isn't it? It's so easy to want to tuck our tails and run and hide because it seems like the darkness is overtaking everything and what's going on. Well, we have to look back to the fall of Jerusalem when times are dark. And you may be thinking, well, Nate, how does that help? That was not a nice time. No, I know, I understand that. But remember what it proves to us. It proves to us that Jesus Christ is Lord. That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. What's that mean for us? It means no matter what we see going on immediately around us, we need not be afraid. Because Christ is the Son of Man, and he has been given dominion over all peoples and nations, and that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It assures us that we're going to win saints. That's what the fall of Jerusalem assures us of. So we can look at the darkness around us and say, yes, times are not good, but times weren't good either in 70 AD, and they weren't good for the church either. There was persecution and tribulation. Yet our Lord brought his church through those dark times. And what did the church do? She didn't retreat. She grew. She expanded and began to fill the world. We can trust that our Lord is going to do the same with his church through these dark times that we are now facing. And he will bring us through it safely because he loves us. And as a result, we will grow in the world. Fourth and finally, we know that we shall all appear before Christ, whom God has made the judge of all men. We know that for a certainty. We see that in the fall of Jerusalem. What does that, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we must make sure that we have made peace with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have fled to him in faith and taken him as our Lord and Savior and trusted in him and him alone for our salvation. Why am I saying that to us? Well, I never want to presume, whenever I speak to anybody, when I, in my own congregation, I never want to presume that everyone there certainly knows the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we consider the fall of Jerusalem, it should drive us to the Lord Jesus. As we recognize that we don't deserve any better than what Jerusalem got. And that our only hope is in Christ and him crucified. All right, brothers and sisters, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for your sovereignty over the nations. We thank you, Lord, that you have exalted the Lord Jesus Christ to your right hand, and we are confident that he now has been given dominion over heaven and earth. As we remember that, Lord, we pray that you would help us to find our peace and our confidence in Christ 
and in His sovereign oversight of all that takes place in our lives. Lord, we face dark and discouraging times. Help us to take heart as we recall that the fact that our Lord is reigning over us, protecting us, shepherding us, and interceding for us. Help us to flee to Christ, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins, trusting in nothing and in no one but in Him alone. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. and sisters, this morning we've heard a bit about the wrath of God, and it's appropriate for us as we come to the table to be mindful of God's wrath, because being mindful of God's wrath that reminds us of the necessity of what these elements represent, that apart from the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we would be without hope and without excuse before our holy God. And yet, because Christ loved us, and because our Father loved us, and the Spirit loved us, Christ shed His blood for us so that we could be forgiven. So my encouragement to you this morning, as you draw near to sharing Christ by faith, by sharing in these elements, is to be encouraged that you need not fear the wrath of God. As you take, partake of these elements, you are saying you are fleeing to Christ by faith and finding refuge in Him. So be assured that His blood is strong to save you that you have peace with God, have been justified through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you come forth, come with thankfulness and come in peace, trusting in Christ to save you from God's holy wrath. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and His body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner, without hope, except in the sovereign mercy of God, and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. <clears throat> Saints, this is Christ's body broken for us. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.